Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 6 for the first half of October 2011. The topic I'm going to give a cursory but lengthy analysis of in this episode is astrology. It's actually hard to nail down a single astrology claim or method that people propose it works by because there are almost as many ideas as there are astrologers. What they can agree on is that astrology is the basic idea that the positions of the planets, stars, the sun, moons, asteroids, galaxies, etc. can be used to describe someone or something and to predict the future based on that. Now, within this episode, I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail on the historical background, nor am I going to go through and debunk a particular astrologer. Rather, I'm going to discuss many of the inconsistencies, disagreements among astrologers, and how many claim that it's supposed to work and why they're wrong. I should also state at this point that I'm talking about Western astrology in this episode, not Eastern or other types of astrology. So no, I'm not going to talk about if you're born in the year of the boar, nor if you fit somewhere on the Vedic zodiac. The system I'm talking about is that codified by Ptolemy in the 2nd century AD, although that itself was based on a much older Babylonian tradition. And while this episode is going to focus mostly on sun sign astrology, it's also applicable to both sun and star sign astrology. Now, as I said before, it's really kind of hard to get an idea of what astrologers think astrology is in any great detail. You get 10 astrologers in a room and ask them, and you have 12 different answers. That said, the majority opinion seems to be that at a very basic level, astrology is a correlational system. If Jupiter appears to be at a certain location in the sky and something bad happens, then astrology says that something is going to happen that's bad the next time Jupiter is in that location in the sky. It gets much more complicated when you start to add in more planets, prograde and retrograde motion, oppositions, conjunctions, squares, triangles, houses, all this other stuff. But at a very, very basic level, that's most of what Western astrology is. So when you get down to it, astrology relies upon knowing where celestial objects are relative to other ones. This brings up an interesting issue, and one that has the astrological community itself disagreeing with each other, and that's the issue of precession. Precession is the process where Earth's axial tilt will stay at the same angle, but it will point in different directions. To understand this in words, and I'll post a picture that explains this much better in the show notes, you first need to picture Earth going around the Sun in a circular path. The north and south poles of Earth, its spin axis, is tilted by 23.5 degrees relative to that orbital path, so it orbits a little bit on its side. This 23.5 degrees is Earth's orbital inclination. Throughout the entire time that it orbits the Sun, that angle doesn't change, and the north and south poles stay pointed at the same points in space throughout an entire year. Precession is where the angle stays the same, 23.5 degrees, 
relative to the path that it orbits the sun, but the place that the poles are pointing will slowly move. It takes roughly 26,000 years for Earth's axis to fully process in a complete circle. There are consequences to precession. For example, you may have heard that when the pyramids in Egypt were built, Thuban was the North Star. That's because of precession. The very bright star Vega will be somewhat close to being the North Star in about 12,000 years. What this also means is that the Sun will appear to be in a different location relative to the stars on a given date during the year. So if you know what your sun sign is in horoscopes, you probably notice that the dates for that sign don't actually coincide with when the sun is in that constellation. That's because the sun was there way back when Western astrology was codified, but because it's been a few thousand years, precession has changed these dates. Hence, we get into the debate of whether an astrologer actually should take into account precession, so things actually are where they are in the sky today, versus not taking into account precession, or where things were in the sky thousands of years ago. To those of you who are science-minded, or rational thinkers, or base anything on observational evidence, this may seem like an obvious choice. Of course, things should be analyzed based on where they are now. Pick the following example. As this podcast comes out on the 1st of October, 2011, the planet Venus is smack dab in the middle of the constellation Virgo, the Virgin. But if we ignore precession, Venus is a constellation away in Libra, the scales. I would think this would somehow give you a different interpretation about what you should be predicting. Similarly, Last summer, Mars was squarely in the constellation Leo. That's the lion. But if you ignore precession, it was in Virgo, the virgin. That's Mars, the god of war, being in the heart of the lion versus the belly of the virgin. If this were an actual science that made unambiguous predictions, we wouldn't have different astrologers arguing about whether to include precession or not it would be very obvious very quickly. Remember, astrology claims to predict things based on where an object in the sky is relative to other objects based upon what happened the last time. The issue of precession raises another question, and this is a contradiction for most Western astrologers that they seem to generally ignore. I would guess that the vast majority of everyone who's listening to this and people who haven't, have heard the age of Aquarius, and hence the ages of other astrological signs. If, for no other reason, you've heard of it than the song about the whole dawning of the age of Aquarius, but since Big Astronomy's last check bounced, I don't really have the budget to play that for you now. Different astrological ages rely upon precession. They are defined as being what constellation the sun is in, on the spring equinox in the northern hemisphere, or autumnal equinox for the southern hemisphere. This year, and indeed over the past thousand years, the sun is in Pisces, the fish, the constellation, on March 21st. Roughly in 300 BC, it was in the constellation Aries. In around 2675, it will be in Aquarius. 
All of this is based on accurately taking into account precession as well as using the constellation boundaries as defined by the International Astronomical Union in 1930. Now here's where I digress a little bit, and I recognize and realize that an astrologer listening to this is going to be going, Aha! Because I mentioned the constellation boundaries according to the International Astronomical Union. This is actually a point that I am perfectly willing to concede to astrologers, because the constellation boundaries are entirely arbitrary. It's true. Astrologers define them differently than astronomers. They divide the sky into 12 equal parts and put the 12 classic zodiacal constellations in those 12 equal divisions. Astronomers don't. Virgo is much larger than Cancer, and Pisces is much wider than Aries. Again, I am perfectly willing to give the astrologers this one because constellations by their very nature are pareidolia. They're based on observing patterns where there really aren't any patterns. But again, the only reason, only reason, that the sun would be in a different constellation on a given day from one year to the next is due to precession. So for an astrologer to believe in different ages based on where the sun is on the spring equinox relative to the constellations, they have to take into account some form of precession. But most Western astrologers don't. But then they don't have different ages, except they do have different ages, but their predictions don't take into account precession, but their ages do, but their predictions don't, but their ages do, but their predictions don't, but their... <clears throat> Sorry about that. Had to force quit and reboot after an infinite loop there. Uh, so, so far in this podcast, I've discussed what astrology claims to be, and then the issue of precession and internal and observational inconsistencies. Now we get to the issue that most skeptics as well as most astronomers know best in terms of complaints. There's no mechanism for astrology to work. This is true, but this is personally not my favorite method of analyzing and quote-unquote debunking astrology, because in science, we will not infrequently have observations for which there is no known mechanism at the time. A good example is Kepler's Three Laws of Planetary Motion that I discussed in the first and second episodes. Kepler developed these laws based upon observations of the positions of the planets, but there is no actual known mechanism at the time. It was when Newton came along and developed the theory of gravity that physicists were able to give a theoretical backing to Kepler's laws. So, it's not impossible that some theoretical mechanism for astrology could be determined at some future time. That's if astrology actually worked. More on that later. But it is true that at the moment, there is absolutely positively no physical mechanism for planets and moons and their position relative to each other and others in the sky to affect people through any known force. To briefly go into this, since many, many other people have in the past, there are four fundamental forces as modern physics currently understands them. The strong and weak nuclear forces only operate at atomic scales, and absolutely nothing to do with the scales of inches, let alone billions of miles. The other two are the electromagnetic and gravitational forces. The problem for astrology with both of these is that their relative strength decreases with the square of the distance. 
What this means is that if I'm twice as far away from the sun, its gravitational pull on me is only one quarter. If I'm ten times farther away from the sun, then its pull is one one hundredth. It's the distance squared. The distance between objects in the sky and Earth is well astronomical. The moon's gravitational force on Earth is many times that of the other planets. In fact, it's about a hundred times that of Jupiter, a thousand times that of Saturn, and five thousand times that of Mars. The sun is about one hundred eighty times stronger than the moon. Distant stars, asteroids, Pluto, and other dwarf planets—these wouldn't even be a blip. So what this boils down to is that there is no known force that could affect us the way astrologers claim these objects do. We don't have a force that is stronger from Jupiter than the Sun that is also dependent upon where it appears relative to other stars and the direction in which it's traveling that has as much effect from Ceres or Pluto or has a different effect during a void moon. Speaking of Pluto and Ceres. This brings us to the point in the podcast where I talk about how astrologers haven't actually made any predictions. No, I don't mean the predictions like you see in horoscopes in the Sunday newspaper, if people read newspapers anymore. I mean predictions about astronomy. After all, the entire mechanism of astrology is that things happen because of where objects appear relative to other ones in the sky. So it stands to reason. That they should be able to predict where an undiscovered body in the solar system may be, based upon inaccurate predictions over time. After all, this is how astronomers, not astrologers, found Neptune. But that's actually a subject for a future podcast. But no, astrologers don't actually do this. In fact, they were slow to adopt the new planet discovered in the 1800s, and after being criticized for this, they jumped onto the quote-unquote discovery of planet Vulcan, the planet closest to the sun. Haven't heard of it? That's because it doesn't exist, or at least has never actually been detected. But when some astronomers around the turn of the century claimed to have discovered the planet Vulcan. Many astrologers jumped on it and started to include it in astrologic charts. And today, there's still no real agreement on what to actually include in charts. Some astrologers include Pluto; others don't. Some include Ceres; others don't. Some even include the dwarf planets beyond Pluto, like Eris or Haumea or Maki Maki. And some include the even more distant object Sedna. If astrology were a real science, there would be a set of things to include. It's like one group of rocket scientists ignoring Earth's gravity, another ignoring the moons, a third making up another object and including that gravity, another ignoring Jupiter and all the asteroids, and another ignoring the sun. All when trying to plan a mission to Saturn, it won't work unless you actually factor in the right things. That brings us to the final claim, but it works. In and of itself, this would actually be a valid claim, and it should be examined. After all, if something is real and it works, in some sense, it doesn't actually matter if we can't explain it. In fact, that's what science is. 
It's a framework to use to develop a model to explain observations. If astrology does work, then everything I said before doesn't actually matter, since it just means that all of those things can't be used to explain how it works, and we would need to look for something else. And that would actually be really neat, create a new science based on what had been considered a paranormal phenomenon. Unfortunately for astrology and astrologers, it doesn't work. The vast majority of astrological claims are incredibly vague and nonspecific. Here's an example of bull. I, I mean Taurus. This suggests that the moon in Virgo today influencing your solar fifth house of love romance, and fun, do something to unwind and have fun. Don't worry so much. That's from terrynazan.com. It's kind of like a fortune cookie. Here's another example. Your great energy is perfect for social events today, so grab a friendly companion and head out to that party or nightclub for some good times. Things should go your way if you're part of a group. That's from astrology.com. Or, your headstrong nature may lead you astray unless you temper it with your more pragmatic side. Is there any real difference between these? Not really. All three are vague and have weasel words like suggests, if, and unless. All three would apply to anyone, regardless of where and when they're born. And the first two were actually taken from supposedly very reputable websites. The first being Carrie Nizan, the world-famous celebrity astrologer. The second being from astrology.com. And I wrote the last one. With these in mind, there have been a few genuine statistical studies of astrology. The most famous is the Carlson Double Blind Test of Astrology that was published in the science journal Nature in 1985. I've linked to it in the show notes, and it's short, and I actually recommend reading it if you're at all interested in this. It has a few interesting quips, like, Two roommate volunteers became emphatically convinced that astrology was the work of the devil and refused to continue in what they called an experimental test of evil. It's an interesting read. Carlson's study involved two parts, and both were heavily vetted by professional astrologers who were well-regarded in the field. That's so that they couldn't come back later on and say, but this wasn't fair, which they did anyway. The first test had astrologers construct charts for each person in the study, and then the volunteers had to pick out which chart was theirs as well as rank all of them based on how well they thought it fit them. The second part gave astrologers a chart as well as three results from a personality test where one of them was from the same person as the chart was drawn for and then they had to match them under the idea that the sun sign you're born dictates one's personality. As controls in both cases, they included ones that did not actually match. The results from the first part were inconclusive, but the results from the second part show that the astrologers were at chance level, and actually below what they themselves had predicted their hit rate would be. Another well-regarded and perhaps largest ever study of astrology was done by David Voas, and I apologize if that's not how you pronounce the last name. This study was in 2007, 
and it used census data in England and Wales for 20 million, that's million with an M, people. The census data records birthdays and marriage status, and Voas' premise was simple. Most astrologers claim that sun sign will determine personality, and so it will help you figure out who you should marry. But, after a thorough analysis of the data, he showed that there was absolutely no statistical significance in terms of what sign was more or less likely to marry or be divorced from another sign. Now, of course, astrologers have criticized both studies, as would be expected. I've posted some examples in the show notes in the interest of fairness. The criticisms of the Carlson study is more technical, and so I'm not going to go into detail here, while the main criticism for the VOAS study is that astrologers claim that you need a lot more information than simply what sign you are in order to figure out personality. Tell that to pretty much any astrology website or newspaper that has horoscopes. So now, with all of this said... If you are an astrologer, and I've made a mistake in what I said astrologers generally, remember, generally believe in Western astrology, please write to me and let me know, and I'll make corrections or I'll have a follow-up episode about it. What I've been discussing is what I've gathered is the general consensus of Western astrology from listening to interviews of astrologers and reading astrologers' writing over the past several years. That music brings us to the puzzler portion of the podcast. Puzzler portion podcast, say that three times fast. The scenario last week was this. You have only an hour or two before you have to make dinner, and you have to thaw chicken breasts from the freezer. You have the following options available. 1. Put it in the refrigerator. 2. Put it on the kitchen counter. 3. Put it in a container of cold water. Or 4. Run a tiny stream of cold water over it. Of these options, what's the best and fastest mechanism to thaw the chicken? Congratulations to Chu from the SGU message boards for, yet again, being the first to provide the correct choice, number four. Just a few minutes after the episode was posted. Chu, did you even listen to the episode before posting the solution to the puzzler? The conspiracy skeptic, Carl Mamer, deserves honorable mention for also submitting the correct answer, as does L, who gave by far the most detailed explanation, as well as a last name, but I don't want to use it without explicit permission. To understand why the fourth option is the fastest method, you have to go back to the discussion of how heat is transferred from the last episode. With heat going into the frozen chicken without cooking it, on Earth, we're left mainly with conduction, where heat is transferred from one object to another by physically touching it. Options 1, 2, and 3 are fairly straightforward conduction problems. The difference between placing it in the refrigerator or on the kitchen counter is that room temperature is warmer than the refrigerator, and so placing the chicken on the counter will defrost it faster than in the refrigerator. The difference between 2 and 3 has a lot to do with the density of the material, air, or water that's touching the chicken. The water is denser, and so it will be able to transfer more heat to the chicken faster than the air can, defrosting it more quickly. 
So far, three is then better than two. The difference between three and four is that you get sort of a mix of conduction and convection. A steady stream of water running over the chicken will both transfer heat to the chicken, cooling the water down. But then that cooled water goes down the drain, and you have more water at the original temperature, transferring more heat to the chicken. This is as opposed to the third method, where the same pool of water is going to cool down as the chicken warms up, and so it won't defrost as quickly an hour from when you began. Therefore, the fourth option is the fastest. Actually, a really easy experiment you can do to see this effect is the following: take four ice cubes of the same size, put one in a small bowl in the refrigerator, one in a small bowl on the counter. One in a small bowl with water, and then a final one in a plastic cup with a hole in the bottom, and run water over it. See which one melts the fastest. I have to give a special thank you to Chef Elton Brown, from whose Good Eats show I stole this puzzler. This week, the main segment was astrology, as hopefully you remember. So the puzzler is going to be about an astrologer's observations. An astrologer claims, quote, "Venus will make a rare planetary loop above the Orion constellation." What's she talking about? Try to figure out the answer and send it to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next episode. I'm doing announcements before feedback for this episode, mainly because there's one big announcement, and that's a thank you to Fraser Kane, the publisher of Universe Today. He posted about my special Comet Elenin episode two days after it came out, and about twelve hours before I had to leave for the airport. So episode five had already been recorded. Fraser's publicity on Universe Today increased the listenership for that episode by about a factor of thirty. And it's boosted the actual number of subscribers by about a factor of three, judging from the number of downloads of episode five. So thank you again, Fraser. That said, on to feedback. The number of iTunes reviews and ratings has not really changed, thanks to Parrot, aka the Dumbass, who runs the Dumbass's Guide podcast and blog, which plugged my own podcast. Thanks to him, I figured out that iTunes Store will only categorize ratings by country, and so I have to switch to Canada to see people who rated it there versus the United States. I agree with Parrot. This is really kind of annoying. If anyone knows a way to see all ratings from all countries at the same time, please let me know. I found two in Canada, two in Australia. But then I tried Romania, the UK, Finland, and didn't see anything, so it gave up. An example of feedback from a Canadian listener was posted under the name "Bear Bums Pookie Bear." This person, or whatever, gave the podcast four stars and said, "Over the last twelve minutes of my life, I've spent about nine of them listening to you. I only stopped to subscribe." I look forward to listening to what you cast out of the pod in the future. Keep up the work, buds. Thank you to Bear Bums Pookie Bear, but if you liked it that much, it should have been a five-star rating. Some people. So again, please take a minute or two, 
just pause the podcast now. I mean, I'm basically done. I, I have a correction to make, but I'm basically done. So just pause it now and write a quick review and make a rating on iTunes. It would be appreciated. In terms of specific feedback, I have a correction from last week's topic on the heat and radiation claims of the Apollo moon hoax. The correction comes from Phil K., who sent me an email, and he's actually been responding to people on my blog whenever hoax believers have posted in the past. He's correcting me with saying, You said the Van Allen belts consisted of alpha and beta radiation. Actually, they consist primarily of protons and electrons, the subatomic constituents of hydrogen that makes up most of the sun, and which it spews out as the solar wind. Since the sun also contains some helium, helium nuclei are probably present as well, but they're not really significant. Phil's actually quite right, and it is mostly electrons and protons, not helium, although helium is present in the Van Allen belts. This doesn't actually change the point of the argument, though, that radiation was blocked enough by the methods used and the astronauts passed safely through. Feedback to the heat and radiations claims from my blog, one is from Psycho Scream, who says, I don't buy these long-winded, complex, distracting, and manipulative explanations that ultimately make no sense. Sorry, Psycho Scream. Sometimes they have to be long. The claim can often be very, very short. For example, there's the claim of the Apollo moon hoax. There are no stars in the pictures, therefore it was fake. That's a very short claim. Actually understanding why there aren't stars in the Apollo photographs and why you can't easily see stars from the day side of the moon takes a lot more in order to explain. And it's actually very interesting. So I suggest that you actually listen or read the long-winded, complex explanations and they ultimately will make sense. In terms of general feedback to the show, I've gotten feedback on the file size of my episodes. People have been complaining because they're too large. Going back and looking at podcasts that I listened to, I saw that mine was fairly large. So, starting with the last episode, I've downsampled the audio to 64 kbps, so they should be closer to 10 megabyte sizes rather than 20. Let me know if these are too small and if the audio is suffering, or if you think that I should go even smaller. That wraps up this topic on the sixth edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website. Send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. I read every email, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, please write a review and rate it on iTunes, and tell your friends, family, and frenemies.